Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more lights, and more love. I love it. Speaking of love, I love it when we have these legends, these legendary people that have contributed so much on the show. We have another one here. She's amazing. Her name is Chloe Goodchild. Perhaps you've heard of her. I think you may have. She's on the show, and we're going to talk to her in just a second. But first, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That's bluecobracbd.com, and there you will find the highest quality CBD oil ever created on Earth. I'm not even joking, people. This oil is unlike anything you will find on the market, period, in relation to CBD products. And the reason that is, is because the extraction method used to extract the CBD from the hemp is a proprietary method called the HIT extraction method. It was developed by a man, his name's Howard Hitt, also known as Big H, and he developed something so magical and so special in the ocean of CBD products that are out there with some of the chemically extracted CBD products that use chemicals, solvents, and gases. This is the only product that is like this. There's nothing else. This is the top tier. Howard uses no chemicals, no solvents, no gases in the extraction process, his hit extraction method. It is 100% natural. It's 100% organic. The hemp used is 100% organic, Oregon-grown hemp. He has the King Cobra, which is the maximum strength, Little King Cobra, which is regular strength. And for animals is Wild Thing. And you give that to your pets. It's CBD for pets. And because it's 100% natural in every possible way and organic, you can put it on your body. You can put it in your body. Contact him at bluecobracbd at gmail.com. He'll tell you all about it. It can be shipped internationally and to other places, but check your country's laws before talking to Howard about this. And he's available, totally available at his website, which is, again, bluecobracbd.com. Everyone, go there, get a bottle, report to me, bluecobracbd.com. And lastly, one more thing, follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can go there. You can follow us so you know what's going on. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click the button that connects us. So when people like Chloe Goodchild come on the show, you know instantly. You get that notification on your device or maybe if you're listening to this in the future, your implant, (laughs) whatever you get to know instantly. And of course, most importantly, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. You know them well. They're your friends. Bring them here. Midnightonearth.com.
Okay, so Chloe's here, and we're going to have an incredible conversation. But just like any guest and every guest, we read their bio. So here we go. Here's her bio. Chloe Goodchild is an international singer, pioneering voice teacher, and founder of The Naked Voice, an organization which, according to its website, is dedicated to the realization of compassionate communication in all realms of human life. Her life's work is inspired by her experience with deafness as a child, which brought her close with her inner self. Chloe's seminal book is The Naked Voice, Transform Your Life Through the Power of Sound, which takes you on a compelling adventure of self-discovery and creative fulfillment through a direct experience of your own authentic voice, the voice of your personal authority, the song of your soul, and your eternal identity. Chloe sings, teaches, performs, and records on her Naked Voice music label and her podcast series, Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution, launched in 2019. It explores and celebrates the transformative impact of compassion with new paradigm teachers, musicians, authors, artists, social activists, new scientists, and entrepreneurs who are making a difference in the world. Chloe Goodchild has sung at the Way of Peace Conference in Northern Ireland and for the Dalai Lama at the Good Heart Conference in London, England. She was the music director and composer of the Vagina Monologues with acclaimed playwright Eve Ensler at Madison Square Garden in New York City. She has released a number of solo and compilation albums, including the Grammy-nominated Sura and her album of collected works called Thousand Ways of Light is available for streaming as well as Laughing Heart, and of course on her website as well, and we'll talk about that in the end. And she is here with us today. Hello, Chloe. How are you? Hey, it's great to be here with you, Jake. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. All the better for meeting you. Yes, well, I feel the same way. We're resonant spirits. We're here to do the work of the divine in our own fun, loving way. And so yeah. we're connecting. We attracted each other, and we're here. How, how are things going in your life right now? What are you up to these days? Oh, my God. I am just so enjoying what's happening because I suppose basically everybody is getting excited about sound, sound as medicine, sound as a force for healing, you know, and particularly the human voice. You know, how can we in these turbulent times really give voice to truth? So that's what's really exciting me at the moment. People are tapping into what you're saying. Yeah, it's 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 so beautiful. It's really beautiful because a lot of people are really freaked out by what's going on at the moment, you know. And so how we navigate fear um, is, I think, is, is a very important component of the human voice, because as far as I can see, the flip side of fear is awe. Right. Right. So we've, we've been taught that fear is where it's at. Right. But in fact, if you actually sound fear, if I ask, so sometimes I ask a person, they say, like, I'm really afraid. Right. As you say, so what are you really? Okay. So what does that sound like? And then when they sound it, actually what they hear is awe. It's like there, it's, it's almost a sense of being afraid of their own power, their own authenticity. And suddenly being given the permission to sound themselves, they realize they're not frightened at all. 
They're just in a state of wonder that they forgot about. So you're saying this fear that people are feeling from current events, COVID issues, just all the strife and tumultuousness going on in the world. That fear is actually something that can be transmuted or the polarity could be flipped into awe with just a matter of shifting of perception. Exactly that, exactly that. And the voice is so magical, you know, because the brain is is just tuned into listening to what the voice is doing and how it's feeling. And um, we just need a little bit of encouragement to just to remember that we live in this dualistic universe at one level, but we also live in an omniverse, right? And so the omniversal part of ourselves knows that there is no duality whatsoever. There's just the human heart, right? And so once you connect your voice or restore that connection with the center of the chest, okay, there's no duality anymore. There's just love. And so that love has many voices. And what really interests me is how we can help people to find how many ways they can express love in this lifetime, in one single lifetime. And it is just mind-blowing once people connect. And of course, the whole energetic system, the elemental system, the emotional system of the human body is wired for love, basically. Uh, and many people told us we couldn't sing at school, for example. Right. And so, so we think that we can't, that, that means we haven't got a voice, you know. And then that interprets as, oh, I better keep my mouth shut in everyday life even, which is ludicrous because we're here to really express our voices and express our true, our true purpose in being here. And that's really what, so the naked voice is really restoring that connection direct with your purpose, with your really true purpose for being here. So, so many people in mainstream society just in daily lives have had their voice stifled. Like you said, they've been told not to sing when they're children, they're happily, passionately singing about the moment. And perhaps their parents were annoyed. They told them to stop singing or even just talking. You're saying being told to shut up or, or stop talking suppresses that inner voice. It goes subconscious. It's just a command telling you to repress and that repression stifles that, that inner naked voice. So how does a person discover that voice? (laughs) Well, laughter is good. Laughter is good. Tears are good, you know, because any kind of really um, natural emotion. So the emotional body, how you feel is very important to recovering your true voice. And then you can find it in about two seconds, right? So what you do is, may I share a little practice? Of with course. You? Yeah, yeah. So all you do is you just, you just ask the question, how do you feel, right? And how does that sound, you see? So, um, for you, so do you want to ask me how I yes, feel and how, yes. do feel? how do you feel and how does that sound? Well, if I just take a breath in, hey, oh, you know, now that's very, that's just available to all of us. Right. You know, and that sounds quite tribal. I don't know what you heard there, but what did you hear? In that I just sound? heard passion and happiness. Exactly that, you see. So we surprise ourselves. Like this this woman came to um, see me the other day, and I do this exercise, you know, and anybody can do this. You just ask yourself, how do you feel and how's that sound? And all you have to do is breathe. Because obviously if you don't breathe, then there's no sound, there's nobody there. Right. <laughs> so you have to breathe, right? And so the breath 
brings with it the sigh, brings with it a whisper, you know, just, ah. So you can just do that for a few minutes and that's healing enough, right? That is music. Ah, right. And then all you have to do is accentuate that. Now, the most important thing to do is not to judge it. That's the thing. When judgment comes in, we then immediately, you know, the egoic mind comes in as soon as you go, ah, and then you go, the egoic mind comes in and it goes, well, that wasn't music. That was just you sighing. You know, that's not music. You know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so then you just keep going. You just don't judge it. You just say to the egoic mind, that's fine. We understand you're a little freaked out by what I'm doing, but just relax. It'll be fine. And then you carry on and you just, so you just let that sound go a bit further. Ah, 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 you know, wow. you just keep, you just keep following it. But the most important thing about the exercise is, in fact, not even the sound. It's the quality of silence your voice leaves behind. So that's the main practice is to listen to the quality of silence your voice leaves behind. Now, why do you do that? Because as soon as you're given that instruction, right, the brain goes, all right, I'll concentrate on that. And then you forget about, you know, being self-conscious, about the fact that you were told to be, you know, shut up in the choir, that you were told, you know, that your voice was no good as a kid, because you're just listening for the silence that your voice leaves behind. And there's some kind of extraordinary alchemy can go on there between just the ordinary everyday voice. It doesn't have to be trained. It doesn't have to spend, you know, 25 years in some, you know, repressed elitist music training. You know, it just knows. It just, we are, we, we know how to sound ourselves, right? Simply by breathing. But the silence, what it does, is it starts calming down the nervous system. And so the nervous system goes, oh, right. Oh, oh, that was actually quite lovely, you know? And it starts to really listen to itself in a whole new way. But you suddenly realize I'm making sound, but I'm not having to impress anybody. I'm not having to perform. I'm just expressing my truth. And that's all that matters. You know, we've been taught that like when you sing, like if you look at like the X Factor, you know, or American Idol or any of these things, it's absolutely terrifying, right? Because you just see these godforsaken individuals, 19 million people watching one godforsaken individual trying to express its voice. In other words, trying to, you know, demonstrate that it's got this voice. And um, it's just exhausting, right? Uh, plus, you've got 19, me 19 million people who are all just looking, thinking, right, we'll let them do our work for us. So we'll just project our desires to have a voice onto that oh. one single person, right? And uh, that's what I found in Madison Square Gardens. That's what was really wonderful, that when I wrote that music for uh, the Vagina Monologues, I had a, a choir there of... 75 of the top actresses of the world. And so like Jane Fonda and Brooke Shields and, and Glenn Close and all these amazing actresses. And my choir was called the Vulva Choir. I mean, it was really wild. It was a very, very far out situation. The purpose 
of that experience was to um, really bring an end to violence towards women. So that's what obviously the Vagina Monologues is all about. It's a, it's a script that was written by Eve Ensler and uh, she just did this research on women's relationships with their vaginas from the women from the age of like, uh, you know, teenagers right through to 80 year olds. And what she found, and it's just brilliant. I don't know whether you're familiar with it, but it is so moving because it's so compassionate. And you just hear, so she basically shares these stories, these incredible stories about women's relationship essentially with their femininity, you know, and with their beauty, you know, and it's all about redeeming the sacred feminine. And I think that when it was released, I do remember when it was released, it was actually huge at the time. And uh, unfortunately, I I was younger, so I wasn't uh, I didn't dive into it then. But it seems like during that time, that was a time of empowering the feminine in general. And what you were doing was just an expression of that after being suppressed in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And this there was like a flowering. And that was just another manifestation of that energy. Oh my God. It was so amazing, Jake. It was so beautiful. 20,000 people, right? And uh, what I decided was normally what happens in Madison Square Gardens is you have like top amazing soloist singers, right? And everybody, again, like, you know, are projecting their desire to be (laughs) onto this one singular individual, you know? Right. And so what I decided to do was to turn the whole thing around. So I wrote this music that was like, choral sound that was led by these actresses, right? Uh, but then was echoed by 20,000 people. So it was, it was, a, it was an amazing experience oh. to really, to really hear and to know that 20,000 people were leaving that place, having really heard themselves, heard their voices and that they were voicing about something that really matters, which is about the beauty of the feminine, basically. Um, so that was, that really taught me a lot of stuff. And that really led me into a whole understanding of the power of not only choral music, but the power of what quantum scientists are now talking about, you know, the morphogenetic fields and how these fields of consciousness, uh, through sound and through shared sound can really transform people's lives, just sounding even one note together. You know. uh, yes. And, and having 20,000 people in sync like that, it becomes a unified mind is, and that is really the true state of the human experience. We live as individuals. We have these egos and these separate lives from other people, but collectively the truth is, is that we're all one field of consciousness and mind. So those moments bring us back to that, that awareness. Oh my God, are you kidding? It's just <laughs> the most highest experience you can have. No drugs needed. You just <laughs> make this sound together. And it's like, you're just, you're anybody's, you know, it's just, it's the most sublime experience. It really is just opening the heart. And that's what I'm committed to now Right? is, is, is that so. Well, as you know, there's And as you mentioned in your book, there's chemicals within the human biology that can activate us in the same way as plant medicines when triggered by sound. So whether the drugs come from your friend or inside your body, (laughs) there's still the sound activation. But I do want to back you up a little bit because your story is amazing. You were actually at four years old. You went deaf. 
Right. And do you have memories prior to being deaf and then during that time? And what was that like? Four to seven years old, you were completely deaf. Mm. It was, it was, well, I, I have to tell you, I was not completely deaf, thankfully. Okay. But I was partially deaf to the degree that I could not really hear social uh, everyday speak. So um, what it did was it really compelled me. So why did that happen? Uh, it happened because I had traumatic surgery on my ears. Uh, I had uh, my tonsils out. Oh, and in that, in that time, the, the plan was to take the tonsils out. And of course, now that, you know, doctors would probably think twice before doing that. Right. But um, the brilliant thing about it was, uh, you probably are aware of the, the wounded healer concept. Yes. This idea, you know, uh, this idea that, you know, that we all come in with some kind of incredible gift, right? And uh, that gift very often is challenged by the circumstances, the karmic circumstances we come into, the social conditioning, whatever it is. So in my case, it was having my tonsils out. And... Um, but nevertheless, what was so amazing about it was that it compelled me to go inside, to really befriend my own inner life, my uh, the silence from the inside. But also uh, because I was not able to really communicate with ease with people at that time for about three years till my listening came back, the trauma recovered. I recovered from the trauma. Uh, you know, uh, I was, I was given this really intimate opportunity to be in nature. So like, you know, uh, the sentient, the elements, the, 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 the touch of the wind on the body, uh, the heat of the sun, uh, water, uh, you know, uh, I was able to connect with nature directly, perhaps in a kind of indigenous kind of way you know, just a really visceral way that enabled me to, um, I remember communicating with birds, for example, I'd get, I'd, I'd be in the garden and, and these birds would, because I was just so quiet and just walking about and just absorbing nature. I remember specifically one bird that would look at me and it was just, we were just in the presence together. We were just absolutely together listening to the same thing it was very very powerful and so uh, i would then kind of i had this tendency to want to run away uh, my dad was a priest and we we had this big family and um i just loved adventuring and we had these big gardens we were lucky enough to have because we you know like as a priest you're given these houses to live in and uh but there was this, there was this like, we lived in very close to the countryside. And so there was fields and nature and a river. And I, I don't know whether it was to do with the fact that I was just so enjoying the silence and nature that I just started deciding, well, I think I'll just adventure beyond the garden gate at the age of four. And uh, so eventually my mother had to put a fence around the house. That <laughs> So anyway, so it wasn't, it was a traumatic experience at one level, but because I didn't know anything else, it wasn't, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Because, 
Yeah, because it's, it was just like my connection. I was given this direct gift of of connecting with nature. And I think that's really what it's inspired my relationship with the sound, with chor- choral music. So when my listening came back, um, music was an incredible bridge for me into everyday communication. Uh, it meant more to me. And music was very close to the sounds of nature, of course. Right. And, you know, and so then choral music kicked in in a big way. And I just joined every choir that I could because uh, that gave me I felt safe in choirs because everybody was singing about the same thing. And there was just these beautiful frequencies all around me, you know, that, that kind of reminded me of, of what it had been like to be partially deaf, just hearing the music of nature. So that, that's really powerful. That, yeah, very powerful. So you very became powerful. one, you could say, as that very young child, you tapped into the nature consciousness, which is rooted in the earth consciousness, which is rooted in the universal consciousness. It's just that one consciousness. So you were able to experience that through nature. And then when your hearing came back, you were ready to go. You were engrossed, choir, anything that activated those feelings. And just like you said, being surrounded by that energy, that that bubble, it's almost like a pocket reality. It's its own world. And you you existed in it. Yeah. It, it, bless you. It's a beautiful. I love the way you're describing that. It, 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 it really was, actually. It was a spiritual experience. It really was. And, uh, and an experience of being in the now. Absolutely, because there was nothing, nowhere else to be. And, you know, I lived in a very, my family was very intellectual. It was, it was quite, you know, I had to go to this really kind of intellectual academic school and stuff. <laughs> and I, I have no idea how I made my way through that, but I think music carried me through. Um, so I played the clarinet and I played the piano and, wow. you know, I was involved in an orchestra. And so I was lucky enough to really, uh, be very receptive to the mathematical and the musical sacred geometry of sound and harmony, rhythm, pitch, you know, the whole deal. Um, and so I was very blessed to have that training, if you like, uh, as, 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 at a young age. Yes, it is very uh, rewarding because you're absorbing it more during that time. Uh, I went to get my music degree personally in my thirties and, uh, it was a little bit harder you know, because okay. I, I wasn't able to just disconnect from everything because my parents weren't taking care of me, of course. So I, uh-huh. I wasn't able to disconnect and truly absorb like you did during those formative years. But you didn't start your activism. You didn't truly turn into the person that you are now until you had that no mind experience. Is that correct? Well, I, even at school, because uh, I, I, I had a kind of near death experience when I was around about I had chronic pneumonia when I was about 13 and I just had this and I remember having a kind of I was with my grandmother and because my parents sent me away to sort of uh, recuperate with her and she was just like my spiritual mentor she was amazing she was connected with the birds again she had a Tibetan guide I mean no one like in that day and age you know people didn't really talk about those things and she was just really tuned in with the universe and so she really I really healed with her and in her presence I bet and it was amazing it was totally amazing so when I came back to school like three months later you know I'd been doing really well at school somehow uh but I came back and I 
I was just being taught all this intellectual stuff, rational everything, you know, competitive everything, you know, left brain everything. And I was going, why am I, I went to the head teacher and I said, why am I, why am I being taught everything but what I want to know? You know, and my head teacher was great. I mean, she really did try and understand, you know, what I was talking about, but she herself was just very kind of tuned into the left brain world. And so I was already restless to want to know more stuff than what school was teaching me. And I was really not very happy there. And then I walked out of my, I, I ended up at Cambridge somehow, uh, to studying music and education there. Cause I decided, right, music is going to change the world. I will be a teacher of it and then everything will change. Uh, and then I realized, oh my God, you know, the music system, music education is just so understated it's so low status in many schools particularly like you know schools where what we call um comprehensive schools here what a joke that that word is for, for school <laughs> god you know not comprehensive totally incomprehensive schools i call them where you know you're like music is like half an hour a week like 30 minutes a week um, and so I just started teaching in one of the most dangerous schools in London, because at least that had more of a diversity of cultures. That's what attracted me to it. And, um, that was pretty interesting experience, uh, teaching there because I realized these unbelievable cultures, like from, you know, from the West Indies, from Africa, from Middle East, uh, they were all being at that time required to sit behind desks, you know, these like little tables we used to have with, you know, pop-up tables. And I could see immediately I was in that school that there was no way they were happy going to be with that because they're like really physical yeah. children. So we got rid of the desks and I discovered this one 13 year old that had a rock band and I said, bring it in, bring it in. And of course I got into trouble because that was not what their idea was for music <laughs> so that took me into peace activism because i realized oh my god the problem is not really with music the problem is with institutional violence yes. and you know we're, we're basically we've created institutions that are just requiring everybody to behave like puppets and just to behave you know to obey to comply to to be in this very very limited environment and so I joined the peace movement at that time. We were really campaigning for just, I was, I was actually, I joined Quakers. I got involved with the Quaker movement because they were one, uh, group. They were a community in, in England that were nonviolent. They taught me about Martin Luther King. They taught me about Mahatma Gandhi. Um, and then uh, I started realizing, God, this is really far out. And then I started exploring nonviolence through music in France and this incredible community in France that was like a nod. They used music um, as a way of generating nonviolent behavior around, believe it or not, shepherds and the whole farming community in, in areas of France that was being taken over at that time. This is like the seventies by, uh, the military that was expanding its, um, its territory. And so these farmers were just literally being required to leave their farms and they were 
shepherds. They were beautiful, these beautiful shepherds. And we would go and stand with them nonviolently and just sing and just be with them and just give them courage to be present, not to fight, not to, you know, use violence as a response. So that was another teaching for me. And, uh, but then I realized, you know, I had to come back and I was funded by Quakers then for three years to bring conflict resolution into schools. So we create, we created something called peace education in schools. That's amazing. I mean, that seems like it made a massive contribution, but that's still part of your growth process. There's still more. Oh my God. That that taught me more than I can tell you, you know, because it was at that point that I really got conscious that there's no problem with children. It's just the teachers are terrified of, you know, teenage energy, you know, or young children, that aliveness that that comes with being a child, you know, until you're socially conditioned. So um, that was an amazing experience. And I was very blessed to meet a lot of incredible teachers, actually. And I think what happened was we were able to give them, to empower them to realize, you know, that they could connect with children in a whole new way. And that, that was really beautiful. Well, it seems really ahead of its time. You're saying this happened in the 70s. Uh, yeah. That's definitely Maybe. something that wasn't part of mainstream consciousness until it seems like over here, at least in America, in the 90s. Oh, that's so interesting. That's really interesting. I I think the Quakers, they do have, um, they go back to the 17th century and they, their whole ethos was to break away from the mainstream church and to bring, you know, nonviolence and conscientious objection and all of that, um, into the world. Uh, and so, but as you rightly say, uh, it, it's, it's all, it was all being played down quite a lot. That's for sure. So I, I was very blessed to be able to really research that territory, uh, and to research it with children, with young people, yeah. uh, and adults. It was very amazing, but there came a point when I realized, hang on a minute, this is, this is not, uh, this is actually great and I think we can be even more effective if we do this with music. So, uh, you know, because I realized because I was busy being diplomatic all the time. And so we had a lot of exercises that we created, but it was all about talking, you know, talking, negotiating, helping people to feel better about themselves. It was more of a kind of talking therapy that we were involved in. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute, I think I need to get back to music because if we bring music into this, communication process, then, oh my God, what might happen? So that's when I I came back to the music. And it was really at that time, I started studying Indian vocal music. And I met this outrageous uh, master of North Indian raga from Paris, amazing guy. (laughs) And uh, at that time, I then got really excited. I realized, oh, my God, what have I been missing? You know, all the singing I've been doing, which is like the whole Western repertoire of, you know, sacred music, absolutely amazing Bach and Mozart and Haydn and, you know, all the medieval Hildegard of Bingen and all this incredible music. Uh, right into the present day, you know, like Elgar and, you know, Debussy and the Impressionists and so on. But 
what I realized was a lot of the singing was still going up and out of the body. So it was still all very like, you know, projection, projecting up and out and all kind of orienting towards, you know, a kind of a higher music. Uh, and I kept on taking me out of my body and I realized actually, wait a minute, I'm not very embodied. So it was really Indian music and Africa. So I went off to Africa and I spent seven months in the outback in Africa and I taught out there. Uh, I basically was required to be a volunteer out there. It was like voluntary work. But essentially, let's be clear, I was learning from this culture and they basically brought me home to my own body, for God's sake. And that's where you discovered the soul song. Is that correct? Well, I tell you, Let's be clear, that culture where I was, right? So I was in this school where I was like a volunteer teacher. But, you know, that was like the surface of it. I remember going into the first lesson with these many women that were older than me. I was only 18, right? And uh, so I'm coming, I'm backing, coming back a little bit in my history to 18 because I did this just before I went to university. And, um, you know, so, so many of these women, they have to wait till the entire family has got through primary school before they can all afford to go to secondary school. So there's that kind of colonial nonsense going on that we were imposing on them. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But, um, so what happened was I said, so, so what, it, what gives you most joy? That was the first question I said when I went in, because they're in my 18 and some of them are in their 20s and they're bigger than me physically. And so um, they said, oh, well, Miss Guchal, you just come outside. We'll show you what we love. So they took me outside and they created a circle around me and they started dancing around me. And it was just mesmerizing. This went on for quite some time. And they, it was called the Dance of the Jumping Goat. Yes. And that was my first initiation into you know, a more embodied way of life. And obviously in that culture, music was still integral to everyday life. But it really wasn't until I was um, studying and, and traveling through India. Uh, and of course, Ramdas played a very large part in that, that I really happened upon my true self. I think that's the only way to say it. Okay. So the... The experience of the the African culture and then Indian culture, I entered into Indian culture through Indian music, first of all. And I then met Ramdas around about that same time. And uh, so I'm studying Indian music. And what I love about Indian music, of course, what it was teaching me was there's only one unchanging note that is at the ground of all music. So sound is the ground of consciousness, you know. And so you can see here, I've got a, I've got a harmonium here that yes. I use when I, when I play. And so, for example, my Indian vocal teacher, now I'm coming fast forwarding again to the 1980s when I started meeting. So I'm now in my 20s, right? And um, so I meet this, how do these things happen, right? 
fit. <laughs> Especially okay. so young. When you're saying you're in your 20s and you've already had these experiences, 18 in Africa, it seems like you have a pretty blessed life. It has something to do with your grandmother and that energy. Uh-huh. There's some something, it seems like there's a, a lineage going on there. I think so. I think so. Uh, you know, it was interesting. I remember my mother saying to me, it took three generations for you to be doing what you're doing. And, and she was talking about her line, her mother, herself, myself. Uh, and it, it, I was I was so deeply touched by that, oh. you know. Yeah. Like they all so, wanted to do what you did essentially in their hearts. And then you brought it to form in, in your in your life. That's a powerful well, ideally, that's what's happening, right, with evolution. You know, like I look at my daughter now, right? She's a jazz keyboard player. And I look at her, I think, my God, who are you? You know, <laughs> you know? whoa, she's, she's an incredible musician and she's gone way beyond me, you wow. know? Uh, so all of this is very, very beautiful, isn't it? The yes. evolution of consciousness. Um, so this Indian teacher, Gilles Petit, he was actually French. But he was a master of Indian raga, and he just, he introduced me to this instrument, you see, and he just, and suddenly I'm hearing, you know, uh, you know, I'm just hearing, and you see, so I've been brought up in a music that is always modulating, it's always... The, the center is changing, it goes from A, then it goes to E, and then it goes over there, and it goes over there, and it goes over there. It's moving all the time, it's changing its center. But this music is just like, you don't have to go anywhere, you just stay in one place. Uh, and it was that that really taught me, wow, how amazing is that? And not only that, you can express different emotions. You can express like, la da 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 spring that's like the spring raga for example or you can you can you can you can express Aha! you know and that's just like an that's just like another mode right that's so powerful <laughs> you can feel it, it, it's it's what is that you know and that's how that whole um question how do you feel and how does that sound that question came to me because I realized that Westerners, a lot of the people that I came back to England and worked with, they were not going to give their life over to Indian Raga. They just wanted to know how to feel better. You know, so I would say, okay, so if you want to feel better, you've got to understand every feeling is a, is a state of music. Every state that you feel is actually music in disguise. So, for example, I would say to somebody, so you feel... You're telling me you feel depressed. What does that sound like? And they'd go, well, I'm not a musician. I can't possibly, you know. So you'd say, well, just, you know, you've paid to work with me. Let's just be my way. Get something out of this, right? So so I go, what does depression sound like? So they go, well, all right, well, whatever. I'll just go, oh, you know, you go, oh, wow, that was great. They go, what do you mean? That was great. I'm depressed. You must be great. And, and you'd go, well, yeah, but that was a minor third. Don't you realize how beautiful that is? That's an amazing musical interval. And they'd start looking at me like I'd really lost the plot, right? <laughs> but, 
Mm. And I and I and I went, you know, and then other people you said, so what does anger sound like? And they go, oh, and you go, wow, whoa, that is amazing. Do you realize what that is? That's a whole other raga. And they'd go, what? You mean anger is music? And I go, well, what else is it? You know, we're just made of vibration. And these vibrations, sometimes they're very close together. They're the intervals, the vibrations are packed together when we're just like, when we're, we're just feeling like really frenzied, really um, uptight about something or really, you know, we, what happens is the music or the sound that comes out of us is, does the same thing. It just, it just expresses that vibration, right? And that's a music that is very, often I say to people that experience anger a lot is that what you start hearing is that it's really, um, creative passion in disguise. So every emotional state, which is a musical state, has its antidote. So, for example, this woman came in the other day and she said, I feel like spring. So I said, oh, wow, what does that sound like? And then she'd go through this whole thing of, well, I'm not musical, I can't, you know, you know and you'd go, well, mm, 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 mm. you'd right. have that conversation. <laughs> and then, so I'd go, well, you might as well, because we've got an hour to be together, you might as well just, so I said, so just, just first of all, just sigh out. She goes, she goes, you go, ah, so I'd go, all right, let's find out what that is. Okay, so that's there. So I said, are you aware you're speaking on C sharp? Uh, so she'd go, what? You mean my speaking voice also is music? And she'd go, and she'd go, I'd go, yeah, 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 yeah. So you're C sharp. And she was like, oh. <laughs> Perhaps she felt sharp. Cool. <laughs> Made her yeah, feel yeah, special. You're one of these. Yeah, you're, 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 you're a sharp cookie. So, <laughs> so, so, so she started singing. So I said, what does spring sound like? So she'd go, aha. I go, oh, that's gorgeous. And then same process, she would start to realize, wow, my feelings of spring really mean something. They they have a musical uh, life. Yeah. Uh, and so what these people taught me, I kept researching this endlessly with people. Uh, and I realized, oh my God, every single human being is music in disguise we're made our our bodies themselves you know as the great poet rumi says everything we have fallen into the place where everything is music ah yeah so that's all that's going on so that's what we teach in our work you know um and so to come back to your question a long time ago which was about uh the disappearance of the egoic mind right uh, it was really my gratitude to Ramdas. He comes in at this point because I was lucky at that time in the eighties and nineties, I then moved from peace education into voice and this new form of teaching voice as a spiritual practice and as a, a, an ex a practice of emotional release and transformation to um with my partner at that time running something called the open gate okay, okay? 
And the Open Gate, we just brought teachers from America to England. So we brought Ramdas and James Hillman, the great psycholo psychologist, an amazing American poet called Robert Bly. We brought somebody called Gabriel Roth, you might have heard of, who created something called the Five Rhythms, which is a very powerful music dance uh, process. And just loads of these teachers. Uh, and we just said to them, we know you're used to flying from America to Germany, but would you just stop in England this time? <laughs> so with Ramdas, I'd been having these dreams, right, of this Indian woman, and I had no idea, but it was coming at the same time as I was studying Indian music. So I didn't know anything about India or gurus or anything. I mean, my dad was a Christian priest, you know, and I was brought up in you know, England, for God's sake. Right. So very limited know. bandwidth in the religious sense, just like, well, oh, <laughs> exactly. You've got it. You've got it. You know, and so I'm going, why am I having these dreams? And this ma this Indian woman would show up in my dreams and she would just want the most important uh, memory was of this woman swallowing me whole and then spewing me out as a man and a woman on her two hands and then saying, right, that is your teaching. Understand what that means. And I'm like, wow, wow, wow. What is this? These dreams are so powerful. Anyway, so we're taking Ramdas round England. We then take him to France and we're running these retreats for him where he shows up and he does his amazing teachings and we bring together about 120 people. There's a whole team of us and we, we create the food and he speaks. So one night he said, right, I am going to speak about some of the greatest saints of the 20th century. And, and he says, and I want to show these slides of these people because a lot of the transmissions of these teachers comes through their images. Wow. So I said, so we're going great. Well, that's fantastic. That's great. Okay. So one of the images that obviously his own teacher, you know, Neem Karoli Baba and various other amazing teachers. And, uh, and then onto the screen comes this image of this woman I've been dreaming of. Oh. She was called Ananda Maima. Yes. Very famous. You are, you will be aware of her. Yes. And she, the blissful mother, right? Right. And I just, I almost fall on the floor. I'm shaking. I cannot believe I am now seeing the woman that's been in my dreams. Right? <laughs> it was shocking. I bet you're like, oh my, oh my God. God absolutely. <laughs> it's like, what? what? <laughs> and at the same time, because I've had this introduction to Indian music, Ramdas also uses obviously the Indian music, devotional chanting and all of that. I'd never really heard that before. And he brings with him this amazing chanting waller, like Jai Lakshman, he was called. And Ramdas said, why didn't you just start sitting with Jai and doing what he does and you sing back and forth, sing back and forth. And, um, but at the same time, what's happening is I'm just absorbing the impact of this Indian teacher. Now, Ananda Ma was one of the great saints, great woman saints of the 20th century. 
and she was one of the great she was a great seer and a sibyl if you like she was a wisdom keeper of extraordinary proportions and following my encounter with that image Ramdas then sent me a photographic essay of her entire life and all these unbelievable images of her was that by coincidence and, or did you ask oh, for it yeah i didn't ask for it just oh suddenly one God. day uh, can you believe it <laughs> through the, through, i'm in england i'm back in england through the letterbox comes these unbelievable images of wow. and you didn't say anything to him about that experience well, we had a little chat about it, and I said, Randas, you need to understand that is extraordinary. So we obviously spoke about it. Right. And he, and he said, yeah, she was really ecstatic. She used to sing all the time. You know, you understand that? She used to sing Whoa. a lot. Yeah. So I was, you see, I was already going, hang on a bit. She used to sing a lot. Now I'm studying Indian music. What is going on here? Now Ramdas is talking to me about this. I've obviously got to go to India and find this woman. I would say so. <laughs> oh my God. Well, what, what blew me away was that she had literally passed in 1982 this was 1987 into the 90s so i never actually saw her right. in directly so she was followed by what's known the the great ma who's known the ananda ma who's who's called the hugging mother right yes but um she's another great 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 ma and in fact when my teacher my master ananda my ma was passing she said go to her go to the hugging mother. So that's a whole other conversation. But what happened was I then went to India in the 80s and 90s. We used to take groups there. And during that time, I started seeking out all the people that had been with her and interviewing and recording the experiences of people that had been with Ananda Maima. Wow. Do you still have those recordings? I, do, I must have them somewhere. And I, oh, that's a good question, actually. Well, hopefully you archive those for future generations. I mean, that's all very valuable yeah. information. Oh my God. Well, you see, they will be on tape cassettes, but I've just, I've actually just uh, transferred a whole load of tape cassettes that I made in the nineties into oh, obviously audio streaming. So uh, basically I will, I will seek them out and find them. Thank you Thank for you. that question. And um, so I'm talking with all these people. What I don't realize is the sheer act of talking with these people is sending me to, into these really deep states of bliss. And then Ramdas has told us, he said, right while you're in India, I want you to find this guy called the inner guru. And he's sometimes he's called the hidden guru. Right now, my partner was brilliant at finding these people. And so we went on the hunt for this guy, but I was just really focused on Ananda Maima. I wasn't really so focused on finding this guy that became known as Papaji. I don't know whether you've heard of him, no. but yeah. he was a phenomenal teacher, a non-dual teacher in the nineties and noughties. And he basically, I, we found him. And I spent six days with him <sighs> during which time he said, some divine teacher has sent you to me. Wow. Your life is never going to be the same again. Oh my God. And during that time, I just said to him, he's, you know, we just spoke and uh, we had an extraordinary six days. And during that time, I started noticing my mind, my ordinary mind was just disappearing like images off the film screen 
of my brain or something. You know, it was just an extraordinary experience during which time. So the egoic mind started disappearing during which time I was able to have access to the oneness of the human spirit. That must have just been a very profound experience for you because you're just getting that divine download. You're getting that that information straight from source. And it probably completely changed your frequency, right? You were one person before that and you were a different person afterwards. You got it. You got it. Uh, the programming is still there, you know, the personality. And um, he just said, all your past lives are burnt away. Now you just have to be silent. And I said, right, I'm a single parent. I have a daughter of seven. You know, there was that whole kind of witnessing mind was there, just looking at what he was saying. But the silence was just all pervading. And so that's really what opened the door into, yeah, you're absolutely right, the rest of my life. And so that silence, it's just left its imprint. But it was that silence really that has entered the evolution of this work with the human voice. And that silence, did that remind you of that original silence, that experience that you had as a child? Did that trigger some of those memories at the time? You see, perfect. That absolutely, you, I started to realize what the whole story had been around. What is it all about? Wow. Isn't that interesting when you oh, tap into your own personal narrative that you see the stories and you could see the foreshadowing, uh, the things that happened. And then if there's foreshadowing, who's writing the book? Who's writing the script? Oh. That's, that's interesting to think about. You know, there's that bigger divine destiny. I love what you're saying. I just love that because that absolutely sums it up. It's 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 an absolute act of grace at that point. You realize one of the things Ananda Maima used to say that in order to navigate everyday human life, we have to walk this path of gradual revelation and grace. You see? And so the gradual revelation is how we learn to navigate duality as if it's real, you see? But the grace is just always there. The grace is what, who we are. The grace is why we're here, is to remember ourselves as the embodiment of grace, which is the embodiment of silence, which is the embodiment of oneness, which is the embodiment of the unified field. And that, so music, is the closest we can come to remembering that without having to talk about anything ever again. So how can someone in traditional Western culture, traditional society, they're hearing this for the first time, how can they tap into their soul song? How can they get back to that original sound? Yeah. Well, the the beauty is because I was for, for, for some extended period of time, I was just in this blissful state, right? Uh, what happened was I was just, I came back to England and I realized I cannot live life as I have lived it. You know, everything, I'm just in the state of oneness. Everyone is perfect. Everyone is beautiful. You know, my daughter is beautiful. Uh, you know, and I'm just experiencing, first of all, I understand that there is this self-observing mind, right? 
So that was the first thing that I realized is given to us to navigate, you know, this, this denser field of consciousness, right? And so that was the first thing that I taught people is that in order to really hear yourself, to, to be able to find your soul note, to remember yourself again through your authentic voice, you have to develop this witnessing awareness because what comes in as as we as we both were talking about earlier is initially we've been taught that music and voice and expressing oneself is largely a judgmental experience you know where we're required to perform and impress people you know that that's the role of our voices is just to you know, live in that very sort of limited way of communicating, which is just driven by duality and right and wrong and good and bad and all of that. Sure. So once you bring the, the witnessing mind in, though, you start realizing, hang on a minute, this is not all that I am. Once I stop judging what I'm hearing myself say, like, I've got a really bad voice, right? You know, like, making statements like or that person over there doesn't know what they're talking about or i know i'm right and they're wrong you know all those kind of statements you know or you know uh left is right left left is definitely where it's at and right is definitely not where it's at or you know uh, kind of political level of awareness even all of this backfighting that the the voice is the slave of if you like the voice is kind of the collective voice then becomes an expression of of the the individual voice and this of course has been going on for many years so slowly but surely by the grace of god thanks to our indigenous communities and our ancient cultures and our perennial wisdom we are able to remember that there is just one of us happening, you see, but the witnessing mind is the is the first step to returning back to a state of oneness, you know, in in to be really simple about it. And that's why I give them that practice. How do you sound? And what quality of silence does your voice leave behind? You see, because as soon as a person is listening for that silence, they've forgotten about judging themselves. It's a very, very, very simple thing, but something comes in, you know, what is, there's another lovely Rumi poem. Um, something, something opens our wings. Something makes boredom and hurt disappear. We drink the sacred, we we drink the sacred liquid in in cups. I, it's it's a very beautiful poem. I can't remember all of it, wow. but it's it's about that something. What is that something that alters our reality? Alters the way, opens up our way of viewing ourselves and everybody else. That is imbued with a state of love. Is imbued with a state of uh, kindness. You know. Of, of gentleness, of, of, of a listening like a mother listens to a baby, you know, or a father listens to its child, you know. Uh, 
And so what happens with our practices, of which there are many, is that we're help assisting people to not only develop that witnessing mind, but the next thing is then to embody the voice right through the whole system, which means developing an awareness of the entire energetic uh, system of the body. Wow. So that's another piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a whole thing we could tackle. We can devote a whole podcast episode to that. And I know we don't have too much time left. We, I, I, we went outside of time. I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, what just happened? This is amazing. I was so focused on what you're saying, but I want to talk to you about something because you're such a master musician, because you've studied the spiritual aspects of music. I want to talk to you about this concept and I want to get your thoughts on this before we go. This I think is for humans, our ladder out of hell, our road to heaven on earth. And I think, and I want you to hear about this specifically. So I think of human consciousness where we are now the bandwidth of all the frequencies as as a musical scale so so if you can envision like a like a c major scale right you're like c d e f g a b c very simple right and we have these polarities the yin and yang that exists it's a universal law within our scale you could say but i feel like and you tell me what you think i feel like collectively if we raise our vibration, we then evolve and kick ourselves collectively into a higher octave. So still C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, but what we once defined as high C is now low C and where high C is, is this whole new place. And if we keep raising our vibration, if we keep evolving as humans, we keep moving up that octave scale. And then yes. we look back at our history and we say, oh my God, we existed in that level of polarity. We existed in that low of a frequency because conflict is still there. We learn and grow from conflict, but how we define conflict doesn't have to be as awful <laughs> some of the atrocities yeah. that are happening on earth so to me that is the road to heaven on earth that's the road to where we are united people all of us together in love with each other the technology the music all of these incredible things it's possible by getting into higher octaves what do you think about that i think you're right on it you are so on it in <laughs> fact we even have practices which really deal with that, which basically address exactly what you're saying. So we, we have a practice called the seven sounds of love, for example, which exactly as you're describing, uh, basically takes you through, through, takes you through those. And then what you're saying is to go, And so what, what's going on there is, uh, th so the first level, we call that the source of love, all right? And we say, I am, right? And then the next level, we, we call that sexual or creative love. And we say, I open. And then the next level might be called instinctual love. And you say, I will, I will. Next one into the heart center goes. So these are chakras, of course, as you realize. Right. The fourth, the 
fourth chakra, the fourth musical interval, I, I devote, I give, right, the heart center. The fifth, right, which is the throat center, right, that, that is, I share. And that is, and that is all-inclusive love, okay? The sixth, right, the pineal gland. I serve, that's compassionate love, right? I serve. The seventh, right? Mystical love, I surrender, right? Oh. And then, the top one, we're back where we started, only we're in a hole, as you described so beautifully, into a whole new scale octave of consciousness. Exactly, you know? And then you can just sing. of how I love you. Wow, so beautiful. You have such a beautiful singing voice. It's angelic. It's just gorgeous. Your voice is just gorgeous. I'm just, but, you know, touching on what we just talked about, it's just so many people get caught up in doom and gloom and they say it's not possible for humanity to unite to us, for us to love each other, no matter where we were born, who we are. And it's not possible for that because conflict it said deems it so it's a universal law but we're saying and you're agreeing that we can transmute that we can transcend that and the united earth that's possible yes because conflict is essential as you rightly just said conflict without conflict there's no music <laughs> you know so it's one of those fantastic koans right that we have to understand what conflict is really about which is love which is connection but it's understanding how to connect consciously, not unconsciously. Yes. You know, would you say? I would yeah. say so. And I think that uh, we could go on for hours. I know that our time is up here, I, but I, <laughs> I do want to tell people where to find you right away. You can go to <laughs> Chloe goodchild.com C H L O E G O O D C H I L D Chloe goodchild.com the nakedvoice.com is also another website where she could be found. She has a shop there with all of her recordings for download. There's a listening room that you can just listen to some of these powerful recordings. And she has books, the naked voice and a memoir out there also called the naked voice. These are available. Some of them are out of print. Some of them are on Amazon. You can find those. And she has a retreat coming up. So if you're really interested in what Chloe is saying and you live in the UK area, you can be there in person June 1st through 5th. She's still developing a remote Zoom or streaming component. So if you're elsewhere in the world and you can't make it, keep checking back to see if they've integrated that. And perhaps you can attend virtually and perhaps you might see me there virtually as well. And she has a podcast. We love podcasts. She's gracious enough to be on our podcast, the Voce Dialogues, V-O-C-E, the Voce Dialogues podcast, Voices of Compassionate Evolution is out there. Check out those episodes that she releases monthly. And Chloe, 
Thank you so much for being here. It went so fast. It was like five seconds. But before we go, before we go, do you have anything you'd like to leave our audience with? Any last final words before we go out to the outro music? This we are now is not imagination. This we are now is not imagination, not a dreaming state, not a sorrow, a joy or an elation. This is those things come and they go. This is the presence that doesn't. <sighs> You're such a powerful human. I love talking with you. We're going to have to do this again. We're, there's so much we barely tapped into, but I know you're such a busy lady. People love your energy. People want you to be at these seminars and these podcasts, retreats. They, they, they just want to be around you. I understand you're booked. Jake, I just want to thank you. What you're doing is so beautiful. And you're going to have to do a vote shape podcast with us next. You're such a, an amazing being. Wishing you all the very best for your incredible work. Thank you. Beautiful. I'm ready. You just let me know. And Chloe, please hold through the outro music. And everyone, what an episode. Another classic Midnight on Earth episode with another legend. So come back. We'll see you next week. Midnight on Earth.